Hello and welcome everybody to the, another session of uh, Exploring Lord of the Rings with uh, Professor Corey Olson. Uh, great to have um, the team and everybody back on Brandywine um, in European friendly time to um, experience this amazing lecture series. Um, and um, I'll just again do like a brief intro, uh, we are casual raiders, uh, as it says in the name, we are casual and we also like to do rating because uh, it's, uh, rating is one of the important aspects of uh, an MMO and uh, we love rating as well as being uh, casual and just chilling in pre and having fun. And, um, and um, thank you all for coming and for this, um, I did not have much time because of my work, but I was able to scribble some rhymes together and uh, I hope you all enjoy this uh, brief um, uh, small poem I wrote for this uh, lecture uh, for today. So here goes. <clears throat> Welcome to another session of lore. In this session of lore we will explore the Lord of the Rings like never before in the company of casual raiders. Raiders, raiders. <laughs> Lord of the Rings like never before in the company of casual raiders. <laughs> casual raiders is the name of the game, but casual raiders you'll always win. Not joining us is just a sin, you might as well be with Mordor. No door, Hodor. Not joining us is just a sin, you might as well be with Mordor. Not casual raiders is three years old, filled with the courageous and the bold. Beautiful people with hearts of gold, so it's time to give the stage to Corey. Corey, Corey. Beautiful people with hearts of gold, so it's time to give the stage to Corey. <laughs> that was awesome. That was excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the introduction. And hey, like any time we're singing a version of the Troll song, it's all good. Um, Phil Nice Fox, by the way. That's uh, not only, of course, an excellent reference to have your fox named Humba, which is a perfectly sensible name for a fox, uh, but it's a perfect combination of Watership Down reference and also uh, it's, it's a very Tolkien-like name, right? I mean, if you look, for instance, in The Hobbit, almost everything in The Hobbit is just named what it is, right? You know, you have like a, 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 a the town in the valley that's named named Dale, which means valley, right? You know, you've got uh, Lake Town because it's the town on the lake. Uh, so ha having a fox named Fox is perfect. That's excellent. Uh, in fact, that's just exactly how I named my first Lotro character, Wigand. Um, Wigand is just Anglo-Saxon. It means warrior because I was making a warrior. So I made a warrior named Warrior um, because it seemed like a kind of a Tolkienian sort of thing to do. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, very good. Awesome. Uh, so, okay. Uh, so, excellent. I am uh, uh, glad to be back here on Brandywine here today. Um, I am uh, uh, and, uh, and glad to be uh, back at, during a, a, a Europe-friendly time here today because um, we are headed back to the Shire again. Uh, we're still going to be in the Shire. We're going to be getting towards the Marish next week, I think. But uh, we're still in, uh, uh, still in, still in the in 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 the Shire proper here today, um, as we are going to meet Gildor and the Elves. So I'm very excited about that. 
Um, so before I started uh, today, though, I just wanted to make one uh, one quick announcement. Um, we are starting to get towards uh, the end. We're now in April, which is the final month to register uh, for MythMoot. And I just wanted to commend that again. MythMoot is our big annual conference. We try to do um, sort of re- you know, smaller regional conferences. We've been doing our regional Mid-Atlantic conference for a couple years, and we actually are uh, working on starting a couple others this fall. We're going to be doing a, a, a Midwest regional regional little mini conference and you know we might add some uh, you know I've been uh, talking with somebody down in Texas about adding a regional text moot down there um, so I'm uh, I'm excited about um, about the possibilities of uh, doing more regional events but MythMoot is the big deal MythMoot is our big conference our four-day conference um, and uh, it is uh, it, it is it's one of the most uh, uh, from the beginning, our vision with MythMoot has always been to combine really excellent uh, scholarships. So you've got you know renowned Tolkien scholars doing some really high end stuff, and we also have really fun engagement with uh, with fans. You know, so many times I've been to conferences, um, it's kind of either one or the other, or if both are there, like if you've got you know sort of casual fans as well as scholars, you know they kind of don't mingle. Uh, so having uh, a place where uh, um, it's like the ants and the ant wives, you know, uh, uh, someday we'll find a land where both our hearts may rest. That's kind of Mythmoot. That's been the uh, uh, the goal of Mythmoot from the beginning, uh, where the scholars and the fans can really come together. So it's been awesome. Every time we've done it, this is our fourth Mythmoot now. Uh, so I feel I can very heartily recommend it. We have a new venue this year, which I am super excited about. Um, uh, the new Baron and Luthien book, for instance, is coming out th- on the first day of Mythmoot, uh, June, which is June first. So we're actually planning to do uh, uh, to do a reading of uh, from the Baron and Luthien book. You know, around there are these uh, these great fire pits out uh, on the lawns there at the venue where we're going to be. So we're gonna we're gonna sit around in the evenings and read Baron and Luthien together and talk about it. You know, because it'd be the first time any of us will have seen it. So anyway, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be a great time. June first to fourth, um, you can go to signumuniversity.org, uh, scroll down just a tiny bit, and you'll see the events uh, pages. You'll see the little uh, icon, the little um, little tile for uh, uh, for MythMoot. And you can click on that, get get all the information, get the full program, see everybody who's speaking and what's going on. At least some of what's going on. There'll be some other things too. Uh, we're going to be doing a, we're going to be do, doing a Lotro event there, uh, which I'm really excited about. I'm going to do a live uh, raid. I'm going to be running a live raid uh, on screen there uh, with some people at the conference and some people uh, outside. So it's going to be it's going to be so cool. Anyway, so I hope that you can join me. It's going to be in Virginia. Uh, Leesburg, Virginia is where uh, our new venue is located. Um, so uh, there's there's still plenty of time. Through the end of the month, uh, the registration is open. So I just wanted to, uh, uh, again, just very strongly recommend that you look into that uh, if possible. So, all right. Let us begin then. Today, uh, um I call today's class Golden as a Summer Afternoon, which I sort of lifted from the description, actually the description of the drink that they're given by the elves, but uh, it's it struck me as a really uh, significant sort of poetic moment in the description of not just the beverage that they consumed, though that's literally what is being uh, described in that sentence, um, but really of the entire experience that the hobbits have. Um, this is a moment that's kind of easy to forget about, in a sense. That is to say, their encounter with the elves in the Woody End has a certain amount of plot significance, um, 
but not a huge amount of plot significance. It's not a turning point in the plot, right? There's nothing like major that's discovered there that changes the course of the, you know the sort of the direction of their travel or anything like that. No new information is revealed there. In fact, Gildor pointedly refuses to reveal information there. So, um, you know, in a sense. It's not a crucial element from uh, of the plot. You know, it's like you could you could cut it from the story, and the story itself wouldn't, you know, the plot wouldn't change or wouldn't lose uh, from it. So many other more momentous things happen later on. I mean, like being in Lothlorien and being in Rivendell, both would seem to be so much more impactful, even from the point of view of encountering the elves, right, and getting to know the elves. Um, so it, it, it's. Um, uh, again, as I say, in a lot of ways, it's really easy to sort of downplay or overlook this moment. Indeed, the only uh, sort of functional purpose that this has in the in the plot is it saves them from that Black Rider who is about to discover them. Right. So I guess that's that's tolerably significant. But if you just uh, you know, all you have to do is make it not that close. Exactly. Lincoln is pointing out that all the adaptations pretty much skipped over it. Jackson's one nod to it, right? You know, when uh, Frodo and Sam see the elves going by in the extended edition, it was cut from the th- the cinematic version, as I recall. Though as the years go by, I don't think I've I've seen the cinematic cut of the Lord of the Rings films exactly once since I saw it in the theater. Um, I've been watching the extended edition ever since, so I'm getting a little fuzzy in my mind about which... Um, uh, which scenes were not in the original cinematic version, but I'm pretty sure uh, that that was a, that was one of the added scenes. Um, and it's it's cool, you know. It's like them glimpsing the elves, and they are walking and they are singing. So you know, there you are. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, as far as the the actual encounter with Gildor and and uh, the, you know Frodo's conversation with him and everything. Um, so anyway, but the point is. Although it's easy to overlook, although it doesn't seem really significant in some ways, I think this is a really, really important moment. Goodness knows it's an important moment for Sam, and the narrator tells us that, right? The narrator tells us that this moment, you know, this night that they spend among the elves there in the Woody End, Sam will always remember as one of the chief events of his life, which in retrospect... You know, given given uh, after we see the other events that are going to be happening in 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 Sam's life, even just between now and the end of the Return of the King, you know, much less the uh, other events in his life afterwards, um, I, it's still a, a pretty striking thing to say that this this random you know meeting at which again you could say nothing important happens. Um, uh, you know, r- you know, remains as one of the important uh, uh, moments in his life shows how important it is. And I think so. What I want to do today is I want to look at that moment, and I want to try to appreciate it in the way that Sam appreciates it. I want to uh, uh, to try to see it and to remember. Um, here, I want to kind of enforce a thing which I kind of uh, a a a principle that I that I've been sort of in, enforcing somewhat inconsistently. Um, but I want to enforce it fairly firmly today. Remember, you are reading the Fellowship of the Ring. You're reading the Fellowship of the Ring for the first time, right? It's 1954. The Fellowship of the Ring has just been released. You've gotten this book. You don't know anything. Maybe you've read The Hobbit. Maybe you haven't read The Hobbit. But maybe you have read The Hobbit, right? Um, you know very little. You know almost nothing about elves. Indeed, that's not even true. You do know things about elves, but everything you know about elves is wrong. Right, I mean that's actually the 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 sort of the truer and more difficult situation is that um, 
Tolkien utterly changed people's association with elves. It's one of the most remarkable things about Tolkien's career um, is that the word elf had certain meanings. In fact, the... Uh, you, I mean, if you're a Tolkien fan, you may know that uh, Tolkien, especially in his uh, essay on fairy stories, uh, fight, fought an active war against the idea of elves being seen as diminutive creatures. He's like, elves aren't diminutive. Um, but it, it's important to understand what he was fighting against. He wasn't just fighting against Tinkerbellism, you know, this this uh, this popular image of of elves as fairies, you know, as these little these little pixies, um, and that's what everybody thought of when they uh, when they thought of elves. Because you could say, well, at least they weren't thinking of elves very often, right? It didn't come up all that often, so it's not like it was a huge part of the culture. But it's deeper than that. It's an old part of the culture. It's a hundred years, you know, hundreds of years old part of the culture. Not just elves, but the association with elves and diminutiveness, um, and such that it had entered the language itself, like the adjective elfin which was the adjectival form. Uh, Tolkien uses elvish. That was He invented that. Elvish was not the adjectival form of elf. The adjectival form of elf was elfin. And elfin, in common English usage, again, not when you're, not when you're talking about elves, not when you're talking about fairies, um, uh, but uh, uh, the, either the adjective fairy or the adjective elfin means small, diminutive. You can even catch Tolkien using that word this way in some of his early writings. So, like, for instance, um, in his the children's book, which, of course, he never uh, he never really published as such, um, the story that he wrote for his kids, the one I was talking about last week uh, during our class, the Rover Random book, the one that uh, uh, Lotro does the nod to when they send us to find the little toy dog, right? So the story about the little toy dog. Well, the dog is is first shrunk down to tiny size, from normal dog size to tiny dog size, and then he's made into an inanimate toy. Um, he is, at in the first stage of the story, uh, restored to animation, but he is still toy-sized throughout the story until finally at the end, the wizard who made him into a toy in the beginning uh, finally restores his size to full-grown dog size. Um, the word that Tolkien uses to den- uh, Rover, the dog who becomes Rover Random, um, is shrunk down. Is, is, you know, Tolkien says he was made into a fairy dog, it, which just means very small. It means a diminutive dog. Like the adjective fairy is a synonym of the adjective diminutive. And the word elfin is described is uh, uh, is is a synonym to to the adjective uh, to, to the adjective diminutive. That's how it was used in common usage. Um, if something is very small, you would call it a f- like you know. So if you uh, if you made a little model of a house, you would call it a fairy house, right? Um, or an elfin house. Um, it's just, again, it's just it's just a synonym with a kind of a sort of a you know folklore fairy tale sort of uh, association, um, but not denotation with the word. Anyway. This kind of deeply ingrained, like deeply ingrained in the common imagination, in the in the in the public vocabulary, kind of concept is what Tolkien was fighting against when he depicted his elves in the Lord of the Rings, uh, in the Hobbit, and in the Lord of the Rings, but especially in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and so, this is the very, um, this is the very first time. For, for so many people, I mean, a lot of people read The Hobbit, more people read The Lord of the Rings. So a lot of the people reading The Lord of the Rings haven't even read The Hobbit. Um, and 
you're picking up the Fellowship of the Ring for the first time, and right here at the end of Chapter 3 is the first time you... You probably, when Sam is talking about elves crossing, uh, uh, crossing the Shire and sailing away, they're probably imagining little pixies flying across the Shire. It's, again, it's the only context they have. There aren't any full-sized, human-sized elves uh, in the public consciousness at this time. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. So, this moment, therefore, uh, it's, again, when for us who are really familiar with it, uh, this story with Middle-earth, you know, with Tolkien's world... Um, we think of elves, we think of Goadriel, we think of, you know, we think of Elrond, you know, we may even think of Gorfindel, we may think of, you know, Haldir, there are other, many other elves, Legolas, obviously, um, that are going to play, you know, a, a really important role in the story, and that we'll get to know pretty well. Um, Gildor is easily forgotten about, but the significance of this moment, so I just wanted to take a few moments to really emphasize, um, it's not a, a, a hugely important plot thing, but this is a scene worth spending a great deal of time on uh, because this is where Tolkien is really, for the first time, introducing the 20th century, reintroducing the 20th century to elves, to serious elves, not just little elfin pixies. Um, and uh, it's a huge work that he does. Again, it's the accomplishment that Tolkien did. There are very few cases where somebody has managed to take on an entire social preconception and change it, you know, but the way in which we now assume uh, Tolkien's elves, you know, when somebody says elf now, we picture somebody at least derived from Tolkien's elves. That's why all the elves in modern fantasy, all the elves in, uh, uh, you know, modern fan, you know, unless they're like deliberately trying to do an anti-Tolkien thing, um, they are all they are all like that. And certainly, even when they're different, they're almost never different in the old way anymore. They're almost never mere mere pixies um you know tinkerbell honestly disney's tinkerbell is one of the last holdovers frankly um tinkerbell you know i call it tinkerbellism you know uh uh for sure he he called it pigwidgeonry because pigwidgeon is the name of a uh, a famous play uh by michael drayton but it was made way more famous back in the day it's not very famous anymore almost no one's ever read or heard of michael drayton anymore uh so i don't call it pigwidgeonry i call it tinkerbellism uh, because that's the th- that's the image that every all the modern people are familiar with. But really, Tinkerbell is the end of a dying line. I mean, she's she is like the last of the fairies, really, uh, when it came to that. Um, but uh, anyhow, okay. So enough rambling at the beginning. I hope I've emphasized enough the significance of this moment. This is the first first uh, step in the great revolution of uh, you know uh, fairy literature of the twentieth century and beyond. So uh, so so big deal big deal um okay let's uh let's let's dig in here i wanted um so this is right after the song we got through the poem last time dig much further uh than uh uh than than the poem uh so this is right at the end of the song the song ended these are high elves they spoke the name of Elbereth, said Frodo in amazement. Few of that fairest folk are ever seen in the Shire. Not many now remain in Middle-earth, east of the Great Sea. This is indeed a strange chance. Now, here I would remind you of some of the things that we talked about last week when we were looking at the song. It seems pretty clear to me that Frodo, you know, he says they spoke the name of Elbereth. I don't think that that necessarily means that 
none of the Sindar or Sylvan elves that are still in Middle Earth would ever have heard. You know that 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 none of them would ever have heard of Elbereth, and so the mere fact that they mention the name of Elbereth is. Uh, is proof. I mean, it's quite likely that Sylvan elves aren't going to be wandering around singing a hymn, hymn to Elbereth, of course. Um, so again, it's not the mirror like, I picked out the name Elbereth. None of the rest of the song made any sense to me, but I picked out the name Elbereth, and so therefore I know they're, they're high elves. I think he's saying more than that. Again, I think Frodo has understood the song as we were looking at it last time. Of course, you can see from plenty of contextual cues, it's not just that they're talking about Elbereth. It's not just that they're showing reverence to Elbereth. It's that they are showing that we still remember, right? We who dwell. Um, that last stanza in particular shows that the 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 elves who are speaking it are exiles, right? They're elves from Valinor who are no longer of Valinor, but who are now still dwelling uh, here uh, in the Great Lands in Middle-earth. Um, and so I think that Frodo's sort of picking up uh, on 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 all that stuff there. Um, uh, yeah, good. Yes, uh, sorry, I missed that earlier. Not a cat. Yes, uh, J.K. Rowling did get the name Pigwidgeon from a reputable source. And indeed, uh, uh, the name of uh, Pigwidgeon is the name of 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 Ron Weasley's owl uh, is now b- b- by far. I mean, no one will recognize the name. If I if I referred to Pigwidgeonry, everybody was thinking I was ha- talking something about owls exactly. So uh, uh, so yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a it's a fine memory of an old fairy name. Uh, well, no, I mean Tolkien hated it. Then the fairy story involved, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. All right. Oh, yes, Halstein. Sorry. Yeah, Halstein is is correcting me. No, of course you're right. Lord Dunsany uh, uh, in the King of Elfland's Daughter is telling old elf stories. I didn't mean to say that it's it had utterly been that nobody else ever did it. Um, I mean, for that matter, there are, you know, encounters with fairy like creatures from others who are dealing with especially those who are dealing in a more Arthurian tradition, because, of course, the. Morgan Le Fay and the other uh, Fay, you know, the other elves involved uh, sort of on the periphery of the King Arthur story uh, kind of come in for some non uh, uh, Tinkerbellish treatment in some stories and everything. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to say that like it was it was like the Middle Ages and then and then all Tinkerbell until, you know, uh, until Tolkien. It wasn't exactly that, um, but it is because of Tolkien. I mean, people read Lord Dunsany and people read William Morris and and uh, and and things like that. But yeah, it's definitely um, well, yeah, the Fairy Queen Harley, of course. But um, uh, but the Fairy Queen is medieval. Um, the fact that uh, the fact that Edmund Spencer lived during what we now call the Renaissance is not his fault, uh, and the fact that we call it the Renaissance and not the Middle Ages anymore is also not his fault. And I'm not sure he would have agreed with you. Uh, uh, there's no, there's no writer in a non-medieval period who tried legitimately harder to be a medieval poet than Edmund Spencer. Uh, look at the guy's language. I mean, he tried, man. The dude tried, uh, did everything he could. Um, so yeah, no, he's still, he's still, he's not. He's not hearkening back to the medieval tradition. He's still in. He's still part of the medieval tradition. Absolutely um, uh, connected, obviously, to late sixteenth-century uh, 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 culture very closely. But uh, but he's still he's his he's still he's still in that world. He's not just remembering it. Um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, so absolutely. Um, was the fairy queen one of Tolkien's inspirations? I he knew it. I mean, everybody knew it. Um, I don't. Th- 
Tolkien, I don't believe, liked the Fairy Queen very much. C.S. Lewis loves the Fairy Queen. Tolkien did not love the Fairy Queen. Um, he, uh, he, 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 it was not, I, I don't think it was, a, I, I would not consider the Fairy Queen a major influence on Tolkien. Um, he certainly knew it as a piece of, of elf tradition, of course, uh, and is a very important piece of English literature, but, uh, but I don't think he was a big, he was a big fan. Lewis, again. G.S. Lewis, big fan of the Fairy Queen. Um, uh, uh, Tolkien, I think, not so much. Anyway, back to what I was talking about. So I hear I've gotten myself sidetracked already. Um, so Tolkien, Tolkien, Frodo, recognizing them as high elves, right? Okay, and, but now notice his emphasis. Few of that fairest folk are ever seen in the Shire. Not many now remain in Middle-earth, east of the Great Sea. This is indeed a strange chance. Remember that um, uh, both Frodo and Pippin were kind of, not exactly passing off the meeting with the elves like it wasn't a big deal, um, but... um, the, you know, remember the, the, the whole, like, yes, you can meet them sometimes in the woody end, right? Elves. Um, Sam is delighted, right? You know, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's all over it, right? Seeing elves for the first time. He's completely awestruck. Frodo, when first they detect that elves are present, right? Frodo is not totally awestruck. You know, he's, it's clearly, it's, it's lucky. He's mostly focused on the fact that the elves showing up at that moment save them from the Black Rider. It's not until this moment, after they hear the song and he realizes that these are Noldor, that these are high elves, that's when he's like, whoa, this, okay, okay. I thought that this was a fortuitous chance, but not a huge deal. Now he's like, this is a huge deal, right? This is a really big deal. Um, not many now remain in Middle-earth, east of the Great Sea. This is, is this is not only uh, a long shot, right? It's a strange chance, right? It's really weird that we should happen to meet them here and right now, right? Um, The hobbit sat in shadow by the wayside. Before long, the elves came down the lane towards the valley. They passed slowly, and the hobbits could see the starlight glimmering on their hair and in their eyes. They bore no lights, yet as they walked, a shimmer, like the light of the moon above the rim of the hills before it rises, seemed to fall about their feet. They were now silent, and as the last elf passed, he turned and looked towards the hobbits and laughed. Um, you know what that description makes me think of? Two things. One, it reminds me of the third verse of the song, their song, the elf song that we were looking at uh, last week. Um, because you'll recall when we were looking at the... Uh, you know, the stars up above and the... Uh, that that context we were talking about, like a, how they can see the the stars uh, in the fields, right? And we were talking about, you know, is this uh, is is are the elves there describing the play of the starlight, like on the grasses of the field as the wind blows uh, in the field, as it describes um, having within their song just heard that, right? About how how you know the 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 world of Middle Earth is still sort of reflecting the. Um, you know, still the seeds have been sown uh, here. The, the, uh, the, the, the blossoms have been blown, right? The, uh, the petals of light have been, you know, sort of shimmering down from the stars uh, that are, that are sown by the hand of, of, of Elbereth in that third verse, you'll recall. 
And we see that, in a sense, that idea being picked up, not with the grasses in the fields, but with the elves themselves, with their own persons, right? With their hair here, especially their hair and their eyes, right? The starlight is glimmering on their hair and in their eyes. And that is clearly not a purely physical phenomenon, right? Starlight, I, I, I was saying last time how uh, I'd never really, you know, when I was growing up, I never really was out by starlight that much. And so I was, uh, I, I never kind of understood exactly what Tolkien was describing. It wasn't until after I became a Tolkien fan that I went out of my way to like go outside at night and see what starlight looked like so I could have a, something of a better idea of what Tolkien was describing when he's talking about starlight and like what must it have looked like, you know, by the shores of Quiviannon and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, howsoever, so although I, you know, can attest from my own experimentation that you can see reasonably well by starlight. Your eyes adjust to the starlight and, and you can, in fact, you know, see around you and, uh, and everything, um, even, you know, with the eyes of humans. It doesn't exactly reflect off stuff, right? I mean, so the idea of starlight glimmering on their hair, this is not a physical description. This is, or rather to say it's not a purely physical phenomenon. Like, the, no matter how star, how bright the stars are, they're not going to be... The, you're not going to catch the light bouncing off people's hair, no matter how shiny their hair or eyes may be, right? Um, so it seems that clearly what it's, um, uh, what it's describing uh, is is not just the physical effect of the light shining upon them. They themselves are radiant in some way. The starlight... um, So again, you think back to that verse, right, about um, the light of... how the light of the stars that uh, Elbereth sowed um, are are now sort of, you know, like the the seeds and the blossoms are sort of spread throughout Middle-earth in them, right? They themselves are, are sort of the... Well, not representatives exactly, but uh, they are bearing the starlight of Elbereth on their hair and in their eyes, um, and that seems to be very likely a, a, a so not a not a natural thing, right? Not, that is to say, not an automatic thing. Something that they've kind of turned on, right? They have set themselves to reflect the starlight. You know, the starlight is glimmering in their hair and glimmering in their eyes, and I have to think that that is a consequence of their song. We know their song is magical, right? Elf song is magical. We know it is it, the way that it has been communicated and translated in the minds of the hearers shows that there is magic in this song and they are under the influence of elf magic even now. And I think that just as the um, just as the words of the song are manifesting in the hobbits' minds, so the something of what they are singing about is being visually manifested to the hobbits as they're looking at the elves, if you see what I mean. Um, The fact that they're seeing starlight glimmering on their hair and in their eyes seems to me a visual, just as as the words in their brains are, are a mental impression of what the elves are singing of, so this vision of starlight shining from their eyes and hair is, uh, is a visual impression of what they're singing about. This is one of the ways that we know, this is one of the ways that elf magic works. Um, it, it's like what happens to Bilbo in chapter one of The Hobbit when he gets imaginatively transported by the dwarves' song, right? When he begins not only just to picture in his mind the things that they were describing and singing about in their song, but how he enters into the 
the the the hearts of dwarves, right? Um, uh, when he feels the desire for treasure and you know all those has all those things, exactly not a cat. This is the Tolkien's word for this is enchantment. Um, enchantment is a form of art. It is the combination of art and magic. Um, in a sense, it is the ultimate. It's one of the reasons why Tolkien had a really hard time with the word magic. Um, he was really uncomfortable with the word magic. Um, enchantment is what he calls elf magic, ultimately. And it's not necessarily like a particular kind of magic. It's, um, it's, it's, the, it's the logical extreme of artistry, right? If you do a good job as an artist, um, then you don't just communicate something to your to your audience right um communicating something to your, you know connecting with your audience you know getting something across to your audience some kind of thing across to your audience that's a success as an artist but the highest success is not just communicating something to your audience but bringing your audience into an experience right if you can in a sense not just tell them a story, but transport them inside a story, right? Um, if that, if you can accomplish that, that is elvish art. That is enchantment. Um, so I take this description of the elves as evidence, as a manifestation of the enchantment that the elves are working through their song just by the fact that they're singing. Again, as we talked about last time, I don't think they know the hobbits are there and are singling out the hobbits. Um, I think it's chance. It's it's uh, a strange chance that brings them there at that time. They don't they don't know the Black Rider is there. They don't seem to know that the Hobbits are there until the last minute. I don't think they're lying about that. Um, this is just so again. It is just the the effect of Elvish singing. Um, so that's one thing that this description makes me think of. The other thing that it makes me think of, um, like the light of the moon above the rim of the hills before it rises, seem to fall about their feet. So as they're walking, there's this very faint glow surrounding them. Um, it's very faint. It's, so it's like a, they're, they're, they're walking in this sort of spotlight, a very faint silvery light, right? You can barely see it. It's not like moonlight directly. It's like the glow of the horizon just before the, the, the moon rises. And of course, you know what that makes me think of. Um, have you ever noticed that there's exactly that effect in Lotro? That the Lotro developers have actually, like, that's what they do. Like, your character walks around in a little spotlight, which looks that actually that looks that's I wouldn't have thought of this but it that's exactly how I would describe it um uh it's funny and it's uh it's something I want to put that on my list to ask them if they ever thought about that um if they ever thought about this uh uh this scene when they were uh when they were doing that I think it's fun but anyway it's it's what it always reminds me of oops sorry um anyway so um okay they were now silent, and as the last elf passed, he turned and looked towards the hobbits and laughed. By the way, the laughter of Gildor here is uh, the thing which more than anything else convinces me that uh, the elves don't know the hobbits are there and that they didn't plan this whole thing, right? Um, it's the, the sort of the, spontane- the spontaneity of his delight in, uh, in greeting 
them that uh, that convinces me more than anything else that uh, clearly he didn't know what was going on. Um, yeah. Uh, good. Okay. Let's keep going. Hail, Frodo, he cried. You are abroad late, or are you perhaps lost? Then he called aloud to the others, and all the company stopped and gathered round. This is indeed wonderful, they said. Three hobbits and a wood at night. We have not seen such a thing since Bilbo went away. What is the meaning of it? The meaning of it, fair people, said Frodo, is simply that we seem to be going the same way as you are. I like walking under the stars, but I would welcome your company. But we have no need of other company, and hobbits are so dull, they laughed. And how do you know that we are going the same way as you, for you do not know whither we are going? And how do you know my name, asked Frodo in return. We know many things, they said. We have seen you often before with Bilbo, though you may not have seen us. This kind of banter is very elvish. Um, And this is something that I think, this is a mistake that I think a lot of people make. Um, A lot of people read The Lord of the Rings and they think of elves as extremely serious. I mean, I think about... Hugo Weaving's depiction of Elrond in the film, for instance, right? The kind of grumpy Elrond <laughs> that Hugo Weaving is always doing. Um, and that seems to me, I mean, I think that Hugo Weaving really captured something about, uh, not about elves in Tolkien, but about the the popular perception of elves in Tolkien. I think that um, he was, um, uh, he was, uh, uh, very much in line with the way that a lot of people, even a lot of Tolkien fans, think about elves. Um, that they're very serious. Uh, that they're very tragic, in a sense, right? I mean, here's poor Elrond with, like, you know, poor Hugo Weaving Elrond, right? With, the, like, the weight of the world on his shoulder, and he can't get anything done, and nobody will listen to him, and he has little power to affect anything. You know, he's the guy who, like, knows all the things, but can't do anything directly about it, and it's darn frustrating, and and uh, and he's, you know, he's got to make decisions and with limited resources, and, you know, I mean, it's... In its way, it is an extremely sensible depiction of Elrond. That is, it, it makes sense. Like it, 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 it's, it's a, it's a depiction that will bear the facts. You know, if you if you kind of think about Elrond and his situation um, in a particular um, in a particular way, right? Uh, from a particular point of view, you can easily see how that kind of depiction would make sense, right? But what it misses, um, it's a very human depiction. Of Elrond, I would say. That is to say, it's a depiction of Elrond that takes for granted, as I say, uh, it makes sense from a certain perspective, right? But the perspective from which it makes sense is a human perspective. That is, assuming that Elrond thought and felt about things the way that you and I think and feel about things, it's easy, again, it's easy to listen to Hugo Weaving and say, yeah, boy, I'm sure I would feel the same if I were in Elrond's position. Yeah, well, maybe you would, maybe I would, right? But we're not elves. And that kind of makes a big difference, actually. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so I, I, I think we overlook some things about elves. This is a very elvish kind of conversation um, that they're having here. Um, they are bantering with Frodo. Um, I look at how they tease them, right? Look at the several levels on which they tease them. This is indeed wonderful. Three hobbits in a wooded night? What do they sound like? 
Well, they sound like a fox, actually, right? They sound exactly like this is exactly what the thinking fox was thinking. And the similarity between what they say and what the fox was thinking is itself interesting, right? Um, I'm not saying that they they had actual they'd had news from the fox and are, but they are um, uh, the fact that they have exactly the same reaction that the fox does shows like. These are people who are, you know, like they and the foxes think alike, right? They are, they are, you know, they spontaneously respond in the way that, like, the natural world uh, that surrounds the hobbits react, right? Um, anyway, but there's more than just that connection, right? Um, look at how Frodo tries to respond. We have not, se- we have not seen such a thing. What is the meaning of it? Um, now that question is potentially a kind of a loaded question, right? What is the meaning of it? You can take that in, well, lots of, you can, a whole spectrum of ways, right? Which I would illustrate by three illustrations, right? What is the meaning of it could be very lighthearted, right? What on earth, right? Gosh, I w- another thing could be uh, a, a, a sort of at the opposite extreme would be, what is the meaning of this, Right? I'm not saying that's necessarily the tone that they're using, but what is the meaning of it? Could mean like, what business do you have being here? Right? Explain yourself is one way to interpret that question. What is the meaning of it? A kind of a middle road explanation would be, um, I wonder what it means. There must be some purpose for this. This isn't something that's just happening by accident. We know or suspect that there must be something more to this than simply you enjoy walking under the starlight, right? Because we know you don't enjoy walking under the starlight that much, or we'd have seen you more often, right? Um, So either of those latter two, right? Unless it's just like, hey, what brings you out tonight? Or like, hey, good to see you. I wonder why, you know, um, if they're saying like, is there a significance behind it? Uh, Frodo deflects it, right? Um, The meaning of it, fair people, said Frodo, is simply that we seem to be going the same way as you are. I like walking under the stars, but I would welcome your company. Um, Frodo's response is very interesting, very careful and very smart, right? He doesn't make a big deal of it, right? He could, what is the meaning of it? He could respond and be all like, I can't, it has a meaning, but I can't tell you, right? I mean, he he could be, um, but instead he tries to sort of laugh at it. He responds in a bantering tone because he knows them, he knows elves well enough to know that they're being playful, right? Their default mode when they're talking with him is playfulness. And he immediately responds in a playful way. But it's also a cunning way as it deflects any serious questions. We happen to be going, the meaning of it is we happen to be going the same way that you are. Um, I like walking under the stars. That's the only explanation he gives, right? Why am I walking under the stars? Because I like walking under the stars. That's why. Right. But I would welcome your company. Right. So I'm deflecting you from uh, I'm I'm not going to give you information about what I'm doing out, um, but I'm not trying to push you away. I would quite like to come with you, but he's not going to explain why. Right. I would welcome your company on account of in your company. I'm unlikely to be hunted down by black riders. Right. He doesn't say that either. So uh, Frodo uh, plays it pretty close to the vest here. Right. Um, But he both gets the tone. 
and he keeps his secrets, right? He, I think, uh, I think Gandalf would strongly approve of his response here to the elves, especially when he's in the midst of being, uh, of being surprised. Um, but we have no need of other company and hobbits are so dull, they laughed. Um, and how do you know that we are going the same way as you? For you do not know whither we are going. Um, and then Frodo answers the question with a question, right? How do you know my name? Uh, again, almost as if implying like, well, you somehow know my name. Maybe I somehow know where you're going, <laughs> right? And want to go with you. Um, so he's kind of playing it like playful and mysterious, just like they're playing it playful and mysterious. Um, the the reaction of, you know, the hobbits are so dull comment um, is, uh, uh, is, yeah, is a... Um, as which one? Yes, as not a cat was saying, the banter is almost more hobbitish than hobbits. Yeah, exactly. Hobbits talk this way to their friends all the time. You know, to banter with them and insult them. That's how you can tell they're close friends. Um, so, um, anyway, it's it's uh, uh, interesting that they were spending. Sorry, are they attuning themselves to hobbits here, or is this how elves are? Well, I'm of course inclined to say that this is just. Uh, uh, this is just the way that elves are. And Yana, you're absolutely right. Yana says, uh, this brings up a good question. Where are they going, in fact? Not to the havens. You know, they're, they're, they're not on their way to a boat, so where could they be going, right? Exactly. A question which they deflect and uh, never answer, in fact, right? Um, but it remains a good question. Um, now, uh Let's let's hit the way back button for a minute, because we've heard elvish banter like this before, right? Chapter three of the Hobbit. Don't dip your beard in the foam, father! They cried to Thorin, who was bent almost onto his hands and knees. It is long enough without watering it. Mine Bilbo doesn't eat all the cakes. They called. He is too fat to get through keyholes yet. Hush, hush, good people, and good night," said Gandalf, who came last. Valleys have ears, and some elves have over merry tongues. Good night. Uh, this is, of course, near the end of... Uh, well, not near the end. Near the, the end of that scene when they arrive. This is immediately after the tra la la lolly song. Now, several of you have been referring to the tra la la lolly song. And this is, of course, one of the, one of the serious... Um, uh, one of the serious issues that people have with elvish banter and elvish merriment. And one of the things, clearly, that Hugo Weaving was going in the opposite direction of, right, uh, in the films... Uh, there is very little of Tralalalali in the Hugo Weaving depiction of Elrond, and but I submit that in depriving Elrond of any vestige of Tralalalali, right, um, I loses something essential to Elvishness, basically. Um, one of the things that I point to, and it took me a long time to notice this. A lot of people will say, you'll hear people say, they'll laugh at the tra la la song and think it's really silly, which it is really silly. Um, it's supposed to be really silly. Um, 
And they'll talk about how, like, they don't like the Tra-La-La-Lolly song. Like, it's one of the things that annoys them about The Hobbit. Because when you get to The Lord of the Rings, the Hobbits are completely different, right? Um, so, you know, or the, not The Hobbits, the elves. The elves are completely different in The Lord of the Rings, right? So, so you know, elves in The Lord of the Rings are, like, serious and, and tragic and moving and, and, uh, uh, and, and you know, sort of... Uh, you know, mythic, um, whereas the elves in the uh, in, in you know, the elves of Rivendell, in particular, uh, in the Hobbit, are just silly. Um, no, <laughs> that's not true. Um, you can see that it isn't true. Um, Gildor and these other elves are clearly they are speaking in exactly the same mode. Um, and as a couple of you have said, I completely agree. Um, I completely agree that. Gildor is almost certainly in the Tralalalali chorus. Like I would, I would, uh, I would, I would put money on the fact that Gildor and Glorian is one of the elves who is singing Tralalalali with them out by where the bannocks are baking, um, by the river when, uh, uh, when, uh, when Frodo, or rather when Bilbo and Gandalf and Thorin and company arrive in the Hobbit. Um, this is exactly that same mode. Um, they, the Lord of the Rings elves haven't lost that element. The challenging thing about elves, but I think an essential thing to understand elves, not to... And this is where it's challenging. Elves are simultaneously merry, not just upbeat, not just optimistic, right? They are... Um, they are merry, joyful, exuberant. Um, they take a laughing delight in almost everything, right? At the same time that they are full of the memory of many, many griefs and, and, uh, and tragedies over the course of millennia, right? That fact about elves, the fact that they are, um, uh, the fact that they're, Tragic that they're sad, uh, that they have experienced loss after loss after loss, and that they are simultaneously full of merriment and a kind of childish, childlike, both delight, right? That will lead them to tease the dwarves and the hobbits and, and sing silly songs, right? Both of those are essential elements to elvishness. And the problem that I think we get into, that a lot of people get into, that again, I think that we can see um, happening in the Lord of the Rings films, is when we try to identify with them. Again, as I said before, I think that the Hugo Weaving Elrond is a, is a symptom, uh, or rather, yeah, it's a symptom of trying to identify with the elves, putting yourself into their position and saying, like, how would I feel if I were there? The, I th- would say, I mean, I'm not a big fan of that way of reading in general. Um, I think that that's, it's, it's sort of the assumed way that people read in the modern world. And I, I've, I always try to convince my students not to do that. Um, cause if you do that, what are you going to see in every book that you read yourself, right? If you're constantly projecting your own self and your own perspective onto a story, um, you're not, you're going to be blind and deaf, or at least you're going to make it a lot harder for any of those things which are outside your perspective and totally different from you and your way of looking at the world to have any impact to come in at all. Um, uh, you'll hear people talking about like, 
I didn't like that story because I didn't find the characters relatable. One of my least favorite words. Um, both because it doesn't make any sense as a verbal construction, uh, but also just because of what it's talking about. Uh, my, stu- my undergrads used to talk this way all the time. Like, I, I don't find it very relatable. Um, again, that's what we value, a lot of what we value in stories nowadays. Um, but that's not the world Tolkien lived in. And it's not what we get out of Tolkien. Um, and a lot of the people who don't like The Lord of the Rings are people who that's what they're interested in. They're interested in relatable stories. The ultimate in relatable stories, at least for a certain demographic, is uh, a story like Twilight, for instance. That's why Twilight, I believe, is so successful. It's certainly not the writing. Um, uh, uh, Stephanie Meyer uh, is barely competent <laughs> to, to, to compose complete sentences at times. Um but what makes Twilight a success is that it's so relatable, right? You know, Bella, the main character, is a cipher into which you can pour yourself and, you know, you project yourself in and then you're, it's like the story's happening to you, right? You're in it. Um, it's a very relatable book. That's not how Tolkien works, right? Tolkien doesn't have characters like that. Tolkien doesn't write that way. Tolkien doesn't... In Tolkien, one of the things that you're doing is you are encountering things that are fundamentally foreign, fundamentally strange, um, that are totally outside, not only um, uh, uh, not only our uh, um, our own uh, experience, our own personal experience, but our own imaginative capability. Right? Um, that is to say, to imagine again, not just people who are unlike us, like humans who are unlike us, but ways of looking at the world that are fundamentally alien to humanity itself. Um, Tolkien's not unique in doing this, um, but it's a, a really important thing. Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, this is why I think elves are tricky, especially in film. Film is all about relatability. A lot of it is about relatability. It's a big thing in the film world. Um, but um, anyway, it's uh, it's it's important to put that aside and see what Tolkien is describing when we get here again. So we we need to come to grips with the silliness of the elves, with the merriment of the elves. It is an essential element of who they are that they are as merry as children. And they, um, uh, and they are these same elves, right? Some of the elves who are singing tra la la by the river in The Hobbit are some of the survivors of Gondolin, right? And, and that was, that was a, that was a, that was a, I mean, that story, of course, long predates The Hobbit. Um, the full tragedy of the story of the fall of Gondolin, um, had been established for two decades before Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. Uh, okay, decade and a half before he wrote it, uh, two decades before it was published. But still, um, he knows what he's talking about here, right? I mean, this is, he, he's, that kind of juxtaposition um, is very deliberate on Tolkien's part. Um, and we need to, to be sort of confronting that. So, okay, keeping that in mind. The elves did not answer at once but spoke together softly in their own tongue. At length, Gildor turned to the hobbits. We will not speak of this here, he said. We think you had best come now with us. It is not our custom, but for this time we will take you on our road, and you shall lodge with us tonight if you will. Um, 
notice that this is, um, uh, this is, you know, so they've, um, told them about the riders, right. And how the rider just like left when they came, um, the elves are, it is not their custom to take the hobbits with them, right. They're the chance meeting. They seem to welcome, right. Um, they're happy to meet Frodo and to banter with them. Right. Uh, and to, to, to talk with the hobbits, they had no intention of taking the hobbits along with them. Um, they're speaking together softly in their own tongue is clearly them trying to figure out what's going on. They seem to appreciate the significance, not just of like necessarily what the black riders are or something like that. Um, what they seem to appreciate the significance of is, at least again, this is, this is, this is me guessing here. I would say what they are appreciating the significance of is the luck that brought them there. The fact they've been around long enough to understand, right? They have just been told. So you just arrived by a stroke of amazing luck, right? By a strange chance, just at the moment that this black rider was about to discover us. And as soon as he heard you, he went up, he got up and ran away. Right. They, um, they know what, which way the wind's blowing, right? They know how that works. Uh, and so they're, they're looking, they're like, Oh, really? Uh, we were just the instruments of strange chance. Were we, uh, let's take you along with us. Right. They don't even know why they don't, they don't get it. They don't, they don't see, they don't understand all about the black riders. They don't know fully what's going on. They don't know about the ring. They don't know that Frodo has the ring. Um, but they, uh, they know enough and they have enough experience to say, "Mm, okay, strange chance intervening. We were the instruments of that. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should take care of, uh, of, of business here. Right. Um, maybe we should, uh, uh, perhaps we, there's some follow up that's expected of us. Right. We've obviously been brought into the company of these hobbits here tonight at this particular time for a reason. And maybe we should, uh, we should follow up on that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that, that, that's what I see in that conversation there. And as they come out and explain, we don't normally do this, but we're going to take you, we're going to take you along with us. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, Grimm says, I always thought they found the idea funny of homebody hobbits wandering like elves deep in the woods at night. They do. They do, Grimm. But see, the point is, they were content merely to laugh at that. And they were going to laugh at that and go their own way. Right? Good to see you. That was really funny. Meeting you is hilarious. This makes us laugh. Many things make us laugh. But this made us laugh. It's great. Um, and uh, uh, no. Now they're going to say, no, we're changing that plan. Right? And again, I think they, they begin to see the significance of it. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope, said Pippin. Sam was speechless. I thank you indeed, Gildor and Glorian, said Frodo, bowing. Ellen sila lumen omentielvo. A star shines on the hour of our meeting, he added in the high elven speech. Be careful, friends, said Gildor, laughing. Speak no secrets. Here is a scholar in the ancient tongue. Bilbo was a good master. Hail, elf friend, he said, bowing to Frodo. Come now with your friends and join our company. You had best walk in the middle, so that you may not stray. You may be weary before we halt. Um, First of all, I think that that line, O fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope, is the most unpippin line that Pippin ever delivers in the entire Lord of the Rings. Um, And I think that's an important 
thing, actually, uh, in, in its way, as far as the development of Pippin's character goes. Remember what we've seen from Pippin all the way through from the beginning of the from the beginning of the of the chapter, right? Um, he's the, been the guy on a on a camping trip, right? Um, he's uh, uh, the one, the only one who seems, of course, you know, Frodo knows he's leaving the Shire. Sam knows they're leaving the Shire. Uh, Pippin as far as anybody knows, just thinks they're hiking to Crick Hollow, right? So um, it's obviously not going to seem as portentous to him, or at least he's not going to let on that it's that he thinks it as in any way more portentous. Um, don't worry. We'll talk about the conspiracy later on. But we're not there yet. Um, anyhow, but he doesn't seem... He's the one who seems kind of deaf to all of the, the sort of deeper... Um, significance of things, right? He's not looking out over the landscape and, and, and drinking that in and noticing the, the sort of significance of, of this or that. He's not, uh, you know, he's, he's pretty casual about stuff. Um, well, here we see him adopt a completely different mode. Oh, fair folk, this is good fortune beyond my hope. Um, I agree, Grim. We do see that Pippin does have hidden depths, right? He has been the most super- superficial of all three of the Hobbits so far. Um, this does seem to suggest he is not purely uh, superficial, right? Um, uh, but what else? To me, I think... Um, uh, you think about these words. This doesn't show any particular familiarity with elves, right? Oh, fair folk. Fair folk is a kind of a vague and not very specific term uh, that's used about elves and fairies in general, right? Um, so, you know, he's not, unlike Frodo, who immediately, you know, speaks in Quenya, so uh, he is showing that, uh, you know, he is a scholar of the in, in the ancient tongue, right? Um, that's not what Pippin's doing. Pippin's not like, hey guys, yeah, I'm totally down with the elf thing, right? That's not what Pippin is is doing. He's addressing them as an outsider, right? Um, again, even the term he uses suggests that he's outsider-ish, right, when he's saying that. Um, the formality of the language, this is good fortune beyond my hope, right? Um, you know, I had, I had hoped for good fortune, but not good fortune. This good, right? And the kind of compliment there. Honestly, this sounds to me like... Um, uh, like a good host. Remember who Pippin is, right? Pippin is the son of the Thane. Um, I'm not saying Pippin's a politician, but uh, uh, you know he is the he is the son and heir of one of the uh, most important, possibly the most powerful and important families in the Shire. Um, he, uh, he 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 knows good manners, right? Um, and he's speaking. It, it, with good manners here, right? He's um, saying, thinking of the phrase that will be used later on. He's uh, um, uh, he's saying a few very suitable words to the elves here, um, uh, in a in a in a very sort of formal and slightly pompous. Well, not pompous is not is not right. That's too unkind. Um, stiff. Anyway, it's a little stiff, right? This is good fortune beyond my hope. Not very personal, right? Not very intimate. Certainly not bantering like Frodo. That's the thing that really jumps out at me, right? Apart from the fact that it's so different from the way that Pippin has normally been talking. Um, 
It's also his whole attitude toward the elves, the stiffness, the formality of it, is so different from the way that Frodo immediately reciprocates their merriment and banter. You can sh- you can see there, too, that uh, Frodo is very much more comfortable with elves, very much more familiar with elves than, uh, uh, than, than Pippin is. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, not a cat. Pippin would have been ta- uh, taught how to talk to guests and make them welcome, absolutely. The elves aren't exactly guests, but, uh, but yeah, it... it um, Exactly. He's being complimentary and formal. Um, and then Frodo comes in with his, uh, like, hey, I know the Elvish thing to say here, right? And then Gildor laughs, uh, as of course he does. Um, and uh, the, um, and yes, Harley, you're absolutely right. The Tooks are considered a bit weird uh, uh, to other hobbits, but they're the wealthiest family around, um, you still treat the Tooks with respect, and especially the, you know, the heir, the, the one who is going to be the Took someday. Um, and the Thane of the Shire, even though that title has not really been used uh, in generations, so people don't think of the, of the Took as the ruler of the Shire anymore, even though they're techni- he's technically still the Thane. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, um, uh, Lady Schmembelach here says, uh, would other hobbits even talk to elves as much as uh, uh, Pippin and Frodo do? Well, notice Sam is speechless, right? Now, of course, Sam would be, right? Just because this is, like, here is Sam's, like, lifelong dream coming true in front of his eyes, right? So the idea that Sam is personally speechless. But you know what? I bet the gaffer would be speechless. Even the gaffer would probably be speechless if he were here. Right, I, I I couldn't see I couldn't see somebody like um, uh, uh, you know the gaffer. I couldn't imagine Fatty Bolger coming across with uh, oh fair folk. This is good fortune beyond my hope. Right? Um, uh, yeah, Lincoln Norwood Farmer Maggot have said that in that same way. Uh, now Farmer Maggot would definitely have the guts to say something to the elves. I mean, dude, the guy hangs out with Tom Bombadil, apparently, so uh, you know, he's used to weird people who laugh a lot. Um, uh, he would only find it strange the elves weren't singing about their own clothing, but uh, anyway, that's another chapter for another night. Um, but, uh, yeah, so anyway, um, yeah, yeah uh, uh, JJ says the gaffer would wonder why they spoke so oddly. Right, exactly. He'd be, he'd be you know, strange customers you do meet in these parts of the show. I always knew folk around here were queer. I didn't realize they were as queer as that, right? Um, yeah, Cecilia's wondering what uh, Lobelia would have said here, which is a great question, right? Exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really know exactly. Would, Lo- would Lobelia have been stricken speechless? She may be, right? Um, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, exactly, Druid's Fire. Uh, uh, Sam is more like a... He, he, his, his speechlessness has more of that air of a fanboy than, uh, uh, than, than just of, uh, you know, sort of a yokel who doesn't know what to say to elves, though both are true of Sam, right? Um, but, so, Gildor then warns them, not only are they going to take them with them, they're going to take them on a forced march, right? They're going to go quite a ways. Um, and notice that Although the elves were joking with Frodo about that he doesn't know where they're going, um, they know his name, and they seem to know. They do take them in just the direction they need to go without asking them which direction are you going and where are you headed. Right? Um, it's an. It's this is one thing. If I had to point to one way in which the elves in Chapter Three of The Hobbit are different from the elves in Chapter Three, like if I could, if, you know, if um, uh, if there's a a shift. One of the things I would point to as a real shift between 
the, the those elves in the Hobbit in here is in both cases is is actually it's a it's a thing that they have in common, ironically, which kind of separates them. In both cases, when the elves are bantering and joking with um, the you know the company, they seem to know more than they should know, right? Like the, their crack about Bilbo not being able to fit through keyholes and stuff, right? They they seem to know more than what might be expected. Like they already know the secret of their errand, even though it's not public knowledge, right? Just as here, they seem to know where Frodo and and the rest of them are going without even asking, and they know Frodo's name. You know, they recognize Frodo. Um, the difference is that there's an explanation for it in The Hobbit, right? Tolkien goes out of his way to explain to us that Gandalf had met elves from Rivendell um, when he was go- when he separated from the company during the troll encounter, right? From which he got he came back just in time to help rescue them from 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 the three trolls. Um, and he explains at the end of chapter two that he had met some of his friends from Rivendell, and so that's why he's taking them to Rivendell. So the elves, there's an explanation, there's a, there's a mundane explanation given in The Hobbit for how those elves know who Thorin and Bilbo are and what they're doing, because they've already met Gandalf, and Gandalf has explained who they are and what they're doing, presumably while asking permission to bring them to Rivendell. Um, here, we're not given an explanation, right? Frodo asks... But they don't answer. I mean, that's one of, again, one of the fun things about their bantering conversation, if we look back at it, right? They ask Frodo, uh, uh, how do you know we are going the same way as you? And he answers the question with another question. And how do you know my name? Right? And they don't answer that. Right? We know many things, they say. Um, And we have seen you often before with Bilbo. Well, yeah, but how do you know my name? Right? Um, Anyway... They know many things, right? And we can see, clearly, they do know many things. Um, they're going to take them right along their road, again, even though they don't know, um, e- even though they don't know where they're, where they're headed. Now, um, uh, Cecilia asks, which is a great question, why do they not normally take others along with them? You know, they say, it's not, uh, it's not our custom, but for this time, we will take you on our road. Why wouldn't they? Why isn't that a thing that they would know? Why is it that, why is that counter to their custom. Um, and, well, it's hard to say. On the one hand, we have some general explanations for that, right? We know the elves keep to themselves. We know that they're elusive. Um, many hobbits might not even have seen the elves had they been even standing where Frodo and Sam were, necessarily. Um, but certainly the elves wouldn't have stopped, right? Notice they only stopped when Gildor turns and recognizes Frodo. Hail, Frodo! You're abroad late, right? Um, or are you perhaps lost? Um, you know, that's, um, uh, clearly, if they hadn't recognized them, they just would have vanished, right? That's what elves do. If you, you can sometimes see them, you can come, sometimes come across them, you might see them from a distance in the wood. You might stumble into a clearing where they're dancing in an elf ring. But if you do, they'll vanish. And you might too, right? You gotta be careful with that because they might abduct you. They might haul you off. Uh, they might put you to sleep for a hundred years. Um, they might take you and uh, make you their lovers. That happens sometimes too in fairy stories. But you never know. Uh, but probably they'll just vanish. Um, that's the custom. 
of elves. Um, and uh, I don't see any reason to think that that's not the custom that they're sort of referring to. Not that taking them as lovers so much, it doesn't happen very often in Tolkien, but uh, uh, it's part of the traditional fairy tale model. But um, yeah, Lincoln was just saying the same thing. Yeah, no, there's, uh, 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 there's very few precedents for that, Lincoln. Arguably one, actually. That's exactly what happened to Baron, isn't it? Uh, Baron was a human wandering in the woods, sees an elf dancing in a clearing, right? Uh, so uh, it it uh, uh, there it happens, right? Well, I guess Aragorn too, technically, right, had the same kind of experience, though that was a little different uh, under the circumstances. Um, but um, yeah, exactly. Not a cat. Thingol was like a, a turnaround is fair play on that subject, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, even that, um, even that. Um, uh, principle, right? Even even that theme from fairy tale is there in Tolkien. It's present. It's it's a thread, and it's an important thread. Again, not a dominant thing that can be expected to happen to. Uh, uh, to but even actually, remember, remember that brief reference in chapter one of the Hobbit when uh, Tolkien's describing the Tooks, and he says that there's a story that one of the the Tooks had taken a fairy wife, right? Now the narrator immediately says that that was of course absurd. Right, um, it's not believed, but the mere fact that that um, is a story, right? The mere fact that that possibility exists shows that um, they that concept, that fairy tale concept, is present in the Lord of the Rings world, right? In the uh, in in the world of the Hobbit, that's how you take a fairy wife. By the way, you don't just go and be like, "I'm going to get me an elf," right? Uh, you take a fairy wife. Like Baron takes a fairy wife, right? If you happen to encounter an elf in the woods and for some inexplicable reason she doesn't run away and she like, you know, and, and like she takes you, um, usually you get taken, you don't, you don't, you don't take. But anyway, whatever. Um, yeah, so, so that's exactly, uh, oh good, JJ was talking about that same thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, anyhow, uh, that's, uh, that, that clearly is a thing. Though again, the whole Romantic relationship element is not uh, a central part of the of the thing in Tolkien. Not one of the customs that they would be referring to. Um, but vanishing—that's that's the standard. That's the standard custom. So in this way, the encounter with the elves is very uh, traditional. Um. Okay, uh, Yana Bombadil and Goldberry. Nah, it's different. Um, it's different. Uh, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um. I, I would not put Bombadil and Goldberry in the same category, actually. Um, okay. Let's keep going. The woods on either side became denser. The trees were now younger and thicker, and as the lane went lower, running down into a fold of the hills, there were many deep breaks of hazel on the rising slopes at either hand. At last the elves turned aside from the path. A green ride lay almost unseen through the thickets on the right, and this they followed as it wound away back up the wooded slopes onto the top of a shoulder of the hills that stood out in the lower land of the river valley. Suddenly they came out of the shadow of the trees, and before them lay a wide space of grass, grey under the night. On three sides the woods pressed upon it, but eastward the ground fell steeply, and the tops of the dark trees, growing at the bottom of the slope, were below their feet. Beyond, the lowlands lay dim and flat under the stars. Nearer at hand, a few lights twinkled in the village of Woodall. Okay. Um, this is... Uh, uh, 
this is one of those scenes. Remember, I told you I wanted you to look at the landscape description because I think it's really interesting in the context of the elves and this elvish journey. Notice what happens here. So first we're describing going down the path. They're, they've been following this path, this little side road, right, um, which is uh, uh, sort of running parallel to the main east-west road, but they're, they're, they're trying to keep a low profile on this path, right? The elves, are follow, they, they follow the path too, right? They're following this lane, um, this hobbit-made lane, uh, and then we're describing, so the, the lane is running down into a fold in the hills, right? And they can see hazel trees on the rising slopes at either hand. And then they turn aside from the path. So then now we take the elvish turn and we're going off to a, to a, uh, a secret place in the landscape. So we're following a hobbit road. Now we turn and we're going on an elf path. And what is that elf path like? Right, uh, there's a green ride that lay almost unseen through the thickets on the right. Um, so there's a there's there's an opening through the thicket. Right, it's not a path, it's not a lane. Right, uh, it's just a it's just a an apparently natural clearing uh, that you can walk where, where you can walk up the side of the hill. So they're going down between these two hills, and you can either go up on the right hand side, up alongside this. Uh, 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 through the, th- through the thickets, right? So it's this like secret way they're going through. You know, you you can barely see it, but they wind their way through the thickets, and it comes out on top of a shoulder of the hills, right? So they they're they're now up and looking down. Notice how secret it is. It's like going inside to this uh, 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 into this secret little realm, right? Up above the rest of the Shire, right? Up above the rest of the. Um, the rest of the, the, the east farthing where they are, right? Um, surrounded by trees. Um, so there's this wide space of grass, gray under the night, right? Woods pressing upon it on three sides. Don't you get the distinct impression that they could never have found this place even if they were looking for it and knew it was there without the guidance of the elves? Or perhaps even that uh, that green ride that they're following? You know, it's almost as if maybe the magic of the elves opens that up, that if somebody else, if a hobbit wandered down this lane to this point, they would merely see thickets, right? That this opening in the thickets is, is perhaps a piece of elvish magic itself. Again, we don't know that for sure, but it, um, it, uh, it could be like that, right? Um, and certainly the secrecy of the place, it's on the one hand open, right? This open field that they're in, but it's surrounded densely on three sides, the side that don't, that, that don't now look overlook and, and eastward it falls steeply and they're looking now over over the trees. So they have this now completely different vantage point on the land around them, right? Um, on the slope below their feet. Um, below the lowlands lay dim and flat under the stars. And they can see the village of Woodall, right? So they're not, they're not totally removed. They're not in this, like, completely alien country. Um, they can see the village of Woodall right there. It's still their own shire, right, that they can see. But they're seeing their own shire from a totally different perspective from this secret uh, little uh, uh, nook up on top of the hill as they look down over it. Um, JJ says this kind of reminds him a little of the straight road. Yeah, exactly. It is a little bit like that. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a much less impressive ultimate destination, certainly, than the uh, the lost road, the straight path, which goes uh, um, which goes to Valinor. But yeah, that, that idea of an elvish path 
uh, an elusive elvish path, um, which again leads them out to a place where they are now looking down on the whole, on the whole Shire. Right, and I think that's really interesting. Away high in the east swung Remerath, the netted stars, and slowly above the mists red Borgil rose, glowing like a jewel of fire. Then, by some shift of airs, all the mist was drawn away like a veil, and there leaned up, as he climbed over the rim of the world, the swordsman of the sky, Menelvagor, with his shining belt. The elves all burst into song. Suddenly, under the trees, a fire sprang up with a red light. Come, the elves called to the hobbits. Come, now is the time for speech and merriment. So, okay, so this is, um, uh, this is elvish timekeeping, right? Uh, when they arrive at the clearing, nothing happens, right? Nobody talks to them. They just stand there, you know, they, they get to rest, right? They, 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 they stop the march. But, you know, they're just kind of sitting around. Nothing's happening until these particular constellations rise. And then, okay, <clears throat> now is the time for speech and merriment. Um, uh, what time is it? Midnight. Uh, right around midnight is when this happens. Uh, um, do I think that means midnight has a significance? No, it's just that in late September, um, at somewhere around this latitude, it would be around midnight, a little after midnight, uh, that Menelvagor, the swordsman of the sky, uh, would be leaning up over the horizon. Um, uh, Grim says, was it the constellations or the fact that the mists cleared? It sure sounds, Grim, like uh, it's it's about the... Um, the constellation, but when Menelvago arises, that's when they that's when they burst into song. It's possible that they're bursting into song to greet the stars as, as the mist clears, um, but I don't think so. Um, now is the time for speech and merriment. Doesn't seem to be due to atmospheric conditions, but rather like to particular like the time for speech and merriment is after Menelvagor leans up above the her, over the rim of the world. Um, uh, because presumably Grimm, if, if the if the mist never did clear that night, which it could well have done, would they have just like remained silent and been like, "Well, mm, sorry, we didn't get a chance to have any speech or merriment with you because the mist didn't clear," so that was a bummer. I, I, I don't I don't think that that was going to happen. I think it's uh, it's it's in this moment. And if anything, the the sudden uh, clearing of the mist at this moment, uh, being drawn away like a veil, seems to me a little suspicious. Uh, I'm not sure if that's not elvish magic itself. Um, that they were sort of show because if if it remained foggy and the hobbits couldn't see the stars or couldn't see them clearly anyway, the bursting into song of the elves and their pron- their pronouncement that it's now time for speech and merriment would seem like a complete um, completely random, right? Um, here it's not random; it's attached to what they can see. So I wonder if the elves, in some way, actually drew aside the veil of the mist so that the hobbits could see the stars. And presumably, they wanted to see the stars, too. Don't know about that, but I wouldn't be shocked if I were to discover that. Um, so, uh, we uh, do, we all know what constellations we're talking about, right? Menelvagor is a pretty big... Uh, Menelvagor with his shining belt is a pretty big uh, giveaway, right? That That's obviously the constellation Orion. Um, and as I said, Orion would be rising uh, uh, in the east... Uh, a little after midnight in late September. Uh, so that all makes perfect sense. And once we start with that, the others, the netted stars and red Borgil, are easy enough uh, to identify. And I think we can do that fairly clearly. Um, if you're not familiar with it, um, here's Orion. 
and the constellation that is right next to Orion, that is the one that would rise right before Orion would rise, is Taurus here, uh, and Aldebaran is one of the two visibly there. There, there, there are a few. The two largest, brightest, and most famous uh, red giants that you can see in the night sky are Aldebaran and uh, Betelgeuse. Um, Aldebaran. Betelgeuse is in Bootes, which is in a totally different part of the sky. Um, but Aldebaran uh, is in Taurus, that's right next to Orion. Um, some people think that Red Borgil is Mars. I am. It is not Mars. Mars does not rise at this time of the night in September. And uh, and anyway, the fact that Red Borgil rises just before Menelvagor with his shining belt rises up over the horizon makes it pretty clear to me. I, I think it's there's really no question that it's Aldebaran, especially since the Pleiades right here, uh, this tiny little cluster, tiny but very bright cluster of, scar, of stars that is one of the easily uh, noticeable elements of the night sky in this season, rises right before uh, Aldebaran, before Red Borgil. So this uh, Remarath, the netted stars, Red Borgil, uh, and then Menelvagor with his shining belt would rise in exactly that order. So um, that that seems to me um, a very obvious description of what we're of what we're seeing here. Um, we noticed this last week during the field trip, um, and here, this is the uh, this is the screenshot that I took last week um, that you can see that they've put these stars in the Lotro sky uh, in the same order, so that you can see here. Of course, is Menelvagor with his shining belt. There's Orion. There is Aldebaran. You can see Red Borgo there, and Remarath, the netted stars. There's the Pleiades uh, right there. So. Um, so yeah, yeah, you can see um uh you can see the uh the um uh you can see the 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 sequence right there. Since these stars and these constellations in this order get mentioned uh in the story, they've uh, they've put them in the game because they pay careful attention to to detail with that like that. So okay. Um but let's 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 push on. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm determined to get through chapter 3 today, so we're going to do this. At the south end of the green sward, there was an opening. There, the green floor ran on into the wood, and formed a wide space like a hall, roofed by the boughs of trees. Their great trunks ran like pillars down each side. In the middle, there was a wood fire blazing, and upon the tree pillars, torches with lights of gold and silver were burning steadily. The elves sat round the fire upon the grass, or upon the sawn rings of old trunks. Some went to and fro, bearing cups and pouring drink. Others brought food on heaped plates and dishes. Um... There are two things that are really noticeable about the description of the place where the feast happens with the elves, right? One is the fact that <clears throat> this is a, this is a really fascinating. It's like architecture, right? It's um, this is the uh, this is the hall of the elves. This is the feast hall of the elves, and it's a hall that is made out of living trees. Um, it's not formed. It doesn't seem to be shaped in the sense of being carven, right? Um, you know, no trees have been harmed in the making of this hall. Um, and yet, it is exactly like a great hall. Almost like a almost like a mead hall, right? Except actually made of not just made of wood, made of, made of living trees. But of course, the other thing is the um, the other thing is the uh, the um, the name, right? The accident of the name, the non-accident, presumably, of the name, right? It's called Woodhall, which is the name of the Hobbit village, very nearby, right? Um, 
the elves don't seem to have a name for this place. But when we're there, you look around and you're like, oh, Woodhall, right? It's the hall in the woods, right? The hall that's made out of the woods, in fact. Oh, wait, sorry, Cecilia, you're right. There were trees were harmed, uh, uh, in, not in the making of the hall itself, but in the seats, right? Uh, the sawn rings of old trunks, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, were these living trees that were cut down? Maybe. Maybe they were. This is one, another thing that is uh, something that gets exaggerated in the uh, in, in sort of in Tolkien fandom, the idea that elves would never harm any living creature. They totally would. They hunt. Uh, there are many elvish hunters uh, who hunt and kill animals. Um, elves are not vegetarians, and, uh, uh, and they cut down trees. They use wood, right? Um, so, uh, so, yeah, did they, did, they, did they cut down those trees in order to make this hall? Maybe they did. Maybe they did. Um, especially if they're old, if they're, because they're, they're not old logs, they're old trunks, right? So, yes, I actually would suggest that there were. Um, so, no, Cecilia, you're absolutely right. Trees were harmed in the making of this hall, it seems. Um, it's still described as this vibrant living thing, right? The green floor uh, and roofed by the boughs of trees. Um, but it does seem it's possible they did cut down some trees in the middle to make it. That's, that's that, that you're, you're right, Cecilia. It's an excellent point. But my point is, this is Woodhall. Um, and it's fascinating that they... Um, it's fascinating that they, the hobbits, named their village that's right nearby Woodhall, presumably with no knowledge of this place, right? I can't imagine that there are any hobbits in Woodhall that know that this place exists. And yet, it seems like more than a coincidence <clears throat> that their town nearby is... Uh, is given the, the the name which would so aptly be given could so aptly be given to this spot. Um, yeah, yeah. Ben says I actually needed to read uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings a few times to notice that Woodhall is the Hobbit village and not this place. Yeah, I, exactly. That it keeps being called the the place above Woodhall, right? But it's uh, uh, it's it's the association between the two is so close. JJ wonders if there's a Hobbit legend, maybe a took or two saw the Wood Hall in a dreamlike state or something. Yeah, maybe there are stories. You know, it, it, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, I, I, as I said, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, I think that there's a reason. I don't know what the reason is. I don't know what you know whether it's in legend or in, in dream or um, or whether there are uh, you know local uh, rumors and stories. I have no idea, but um, but I am pretty. I am pretty confident that it's not a coincidence that this happened. And that idea, that little glimpse that we get of the way that the presence of the elves and the proximity of the elves, who come here a lot, obviously, um, uh, has influenced the Hobbit society nearby is really is a really fascinating glimpse into the connection there. Pippin afterwards recalled little of either food or drink, for his mind was filled with the light upon the elf faces, and the sound of voices so various and so beautiful that he felt an awaking dream. But he remembered that there was bread, surpassing the savor of a fair white loaf to one who is starving, and fruits sweet as wild berries, and richer than the tended fruits of gardens. He drained a cup that was filled with a fragrant draught, cool as a clear fountain, golden as a summer afternoon. 
Sam could never describe it in words, nor picture clearly to himself what he felt or thought that night, though it remained in his memory as one of the chief events of his life. The nearest he ever got was to say, "'Well, sir, if I could grow apples like that, I would call myself a gardener.' But it was the singing that went to my heart, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so... We talked about this scene before when I was talking about the title that I drew, uh, that I drew from this scene. Um, notice we get the two paragraphs, right? One with Pippin and one with Sam. Um, it's interesting that we're told that Pippin could recall little of food or drink, though we get a whole paragraph about the food and drink, right? Um, so he, require, he, he recalls little in detail, and yet clearly the impression that the food and drink made upon him was very strong indeed, right? So he might not remember the details. Um, he doesn't remember exactly what the bread was like. He doesn't remember exactly what the fruits were, um, but they made an indelible impression upon his imagination and his memory, right? Um, as did the drink, of course. Um, and he feels like he's in a waking dream. The experience is like being in a dream. Um, Sam can't ever describe that experience. Um, he also clearly had the food and drink make a similar impression upon him, and he immediately contextualizes that as a gardener, right? Um, you know, I know good fruit, but yeah, I'd call my, I would call myself a gardener, right? I, I, compared to, to that, I, I'm not even worthy to be called a gardener, right? Um, but it was the singing, that went to my heart. That stuff was fantastic, but it's not about, it wasn't about the food, right? The food was the greatest food I'd ever had in my life, but that wasn't the important thing about that night, right? Um, that wasn't the most important thing. Um, notice what Tolkien is doing in these two paragraphs. Um, he is trying to convey the experience of meeting the elves, He's not just describing the elves, right? He's not just describing the elves. He's not just telling us about what happened and what the elves did and said, because that wouldn't be enough. That's Again, that's not why this scene is important. Um, very little of what's done or said really matters long-term, as far as the story is concerned. Um, there will be several references to it in the sense of, um, you know... B Gildor is going to tell Frodo that he's going to send messages out to, you know, everybody he knows, and we'll see lots of people who've received those messages um, uh, in future chapters. But it doesn't do anything, right? I mean, there's no... Uh, it's not... That's not going to become crucial later on in the plot. Like, well, it's a good thing. If I hadn't gotten Gildor's message, you would certainly have died. Like, it's, it's, it's not going to come in like that. Um, again, it's not of a plot significance. The whole importance of this is the experience, is what he's trying to capture here in these couple paragraphs, right? I'm not saying these two paragraphs are the only important ones, but I think it's a really important cue about what Tolkien is doing, again, about why this scene matters as much as it does, why it's as important as I think it is. Grim, exactly. He is describing the indescribable. That's exactly what Tolkien is doing here. Um, he is trying to describe the experience of encountering the undescribable. Um, yeah, good, I agree. It is, uh, uh, Milthaliel is recalling people talk, uh, uh, 
uh, uh, Tony and others talking about uh, Sam's chanting, the sailing, sailing, sailing in the first uh, in in Sam's first scene. Right. Um, it would be the singing that goes to his heart, that same kind of impulse to towards song and verse. It's the very non prosiness of Sam's uh, personality, right, of his outlook uh, that makes it, I agree with you, Mathaliel, not at all surprising that um, that's what he recalls. Cecilia says, why do we not get a hint as to what Frodo is thinking right here? Um, this is just one place in the story uh, as a whole where we're being kept from knowing what's in Frodo's mind. I agree. It's unusual, Cecilia. Um, in fact, especially unusual to get this. <clears throat> what's in Pippin's head, what's in Sam's head, and not what's in Frodo's head. But it seems to me that the the function of that or the, the way that that works, we're going to get a conversation with Frodo, right? Frodo has other things on his mind. In a sense, Frodo is... For, well, Frodo's not having the same experience that Sam and Pippin are, right? For two reasons. One, he's encountered elves before. So he is uh, appreciating it, right? It's not that he doesn't like it or something. But this is not a first encounter. So the reader is not in a parallel uh, position to Frodo. We're in a parallel position to, to Pippin and Sam, right? We are encountering elves for the first time, and so he's keeping us close to Pippin, which, which or Pippin and to Sam, which makes a good deal of sense. Um, but also, it's not just that uh, this is not Frodo's first experience. It's also that he's thinking about the Black Riders, right? And he knows the significance of the quest, and he's uh, concerned, right, about uh, about what's going on. So, um, uh, so in a sense, of course, we are going to shift to um, uh, to Frodo, and we are going to uh, see what he's thinking. But it's not going to be it's not going to be like the others. I think that's an important. Uh, I, I think that's an important point. Um, I am running out of time. We're just getting to Gildor's talk. Mm. <laughs> JJ says one more week. You know... When we got to chapter two, I was totally expecting that we were going to spend quite a lot of time in chapter two. We ended up doing, uh, uh, we ended up doing like what five weeks on chapter two, um, which didn't surprise me at all. Then we got to chapter three, and I'm like, all right, we're going to go much faster again here now that we're now that we're out of chapter two and into chapter three. If I carry this over to next week, that will be the sixth class that we'll be doing on Chapter 3. So it's not just that we're going slowly. We're going slower and slower as we go along. Uh, we're not just, uh, you know, projecting out, you know, to ten years from now and still be in this series. But we're, uh, we're, out, we're, we're on pace to never finish as we continue getting slower in every single chapter. Um, but I agree, Lincoln. The whole point of the class is to take however long it takes. Um, so let's do that. Let's... Um, uh, Let's come back uh, and talk about the... So having looked at the Elvish experience, that was the main thing I wanted to talk about today anyway. Uh, so I think that the previous slide, this one here, is a good one to end with uh, and is really sort of the final um, acknowledgement or, or attempt to kind of convey this whole Elvish experience. Um, so uh, 
yeah. So let's let's stop there. We'll do Gildor and Frodo's conversation. We'll, we'll we'll waltz through Gildor Gildor and Frodo's conversation at the very beginning of class next time, and then we'll move on to chapter four. I do expect we'll actually start uh, chapter four next time. Uh, uh, that's that's what I that's what I think. I don't think we're going to spend the whole time on their conversation, um, but we will start with that. We will start with <laughs> with that next time. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 Ninth age, Jude. It's, it's fine. What will be? Um, I'm I'm comfortable with the ninth age. Um, so uh, glad. Yeah, JJ says. Who knows? Ten years from now, we may even be most of the way through chapter five. Yeah. Well, at this rate, if we only add one week per chapter, you know, <laughs> we should make it. Uh, <clears throat> we will make it in ten years at that rate. But uh, we're doing fine. All right. Okay. Um, but I do need to, I do, I know we started a little bit late, so I, didn't, I don't mind uh, ending a little bit late today, but we do need to, I do need to, to move along as I have actually another class to attend uh, this evening. I'm giving a guest lecture in uh, one of our Signum classes here tonight, talking about, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, talking about literary theory. So tonight I'm talking about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's literary theory. So I got to make sure to, to, to get over there to that. Okay. Um, so... Ah, yes, of course. Tom Hillman points out we're doing this in Valinorian weeks. That makes that makes perfect sense, Tom. Um, okay, um, so let's uh, let's 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 do our field trip. Disembodied voice here. Yes, I'm not in the lore hall anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Estella Lee is um, is uh, going to manage getting a folks. We're going to Meluinen tonight. Yes. To visit a special elf. That's right. And uh, I'm actually here so I can summon Corey here. And Estella Lee is, is going to take care of getting people here, either by Estelden or directly. And in the meantime, I will uh, I will uh, fellow with you and get you here. Okay, very good. Yeah, so we're going to the North Downs today. Okay. All right. Okay, um... If anybody needs um, a summon to to in, um, just um, oh. send me a tell and and I'll I'll bring you here. Or are we going uh, to Estelden and then ride to uh, Meluinen? Um, I'm, I'm summoning you straight to uh, our Meluinen. Okay, there. great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll go straight there. Okay, here we are in Lynn Gilliath. Okay, thank you, Maven. Appreciate I that. I brought you to an odd spot. Yeah, I was it like, is. It is like, yeah. think, oh, we did. Where are we? <laughs> Look, it's visiting elf. Okay, that's good. Oh yeah. So, uh, uh, Trish, before... these guys actually say stuff. So there's okay. the, he actually says stuff, and there's a person sitting out here who says stuff. Cool. So it might be interesting for you. Yeah. To, to... Well, first, before we forget, um, uh, next week, uh, which server are we on? We're in Arkenstone next week. Arkenstone next week. At our usual week. time of nine thirty p.m. Eastern. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Awesome. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. So, Arkenstone next week. Regular 9.30 p.m. Better introduce myself to the stable master while we're here. Okay. So, where are we? First of all, let us contextualize ourselves from uh, the map standpoint. We are in the North Downs. Um, and the North Downs, of course, are mentioned in the book uh, uh, by that name, but they're, of course, not talked about a whole lot. Um, they're just north of Bree. So we've got 
This is the road from the Shire. Right here's the old forest and Buckland down here, and the old forest and the Barrow Downs next to the old forest. And here's Bree here with the uh, uh, towns of of Combe and Staddle and Archit up here by the Chetwood. Here's the Midgewater Marshes and the Weather Hills out towards Weathertop. So. Um, this, of course, is all fam- very familiar terrain uh, from the book. North of Bree. So this is the Greenway, of course. Bree is, co- of course, uh, right at the intersection of the old East-West Road and the old North-South Road, the Greenway, um, which ends, of course, up at Fornost. So going back up to the North Downs. Um, you can see that the Greenway f- that passes by Bree and comes all the way up from the south uh, continues all the way up to Fornost, which was the old capital of Arnor. This, of course, is what Barlamin Butterbur refers to as Dead Men's Dyke. Um, that's haunted land, that is, he says, um, uh, as well may be. Uh, so we are over here in the parts of the North Downs, which are totally not described, um, and in which nothing ever happens, although we do get a little bit of history uh, from here in Appendix A, a uh, little bit. Uh, but, um, of course, the other thing that we know about it, again, thinking about it, what, what, what we know about it from Tolkien, is, of course, its, it's location on the map, that this is uh, Fornost, and, of course, uh, so it's right near where the old capital was, and just south of Angmar, uh, which is where Karndum is, um, you know, the, of course, the old kingdom of the Witch King, back when uh, that was a thing. So, uh, so this is where we are. We are so we are north and east of the Shire. If we if we go out here, um, we can see. So here's the Shire, Bree, the Lone Lands, where uh, uh, where Bilbo meets the trolls, where Weathertop is. Oh, Bilbo meets the trolls, of course, out in the Trollshaws. Uh, weather top is out here in the lowlands. Uh, the North Downs is up here north of here, so you can see it's between, you know, Breland uh, and Angmar, the kingdom of Arnor, the center of the kingdom of Arnor. The 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 old capital is at Anuminus out here in Evendim. Fornost was the sort of the military center, was the chief fortress of the kingdom of Arnor. So the king was based there in the later ages of Arnor during the wars. Basically, um, and we'll 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 do field trips to all of these places eventually. I definitely want to, be. but don't worry, we'll have plenty of time uh, to tour every single place we want to tour, no question. Um, so just a little context as to exactly where we are. So again, Shire here, uh, and if you wander to the north and east, you'll get up here to where we are on the North Downs. So that's where we are in general, um, and. Now, as to where we are specifically, if you... Let me mount up here for a second. This is the approach into this valley here. Um, And one thing that's kind of interesting about this elf spot is that it's it's very open. You see, so we're under uh, the stars, because it's nighttime again, um... It seems to be nighttime a lot when we're having our, our field trips. Um, there are these st- elvish-looking structures. You can tell the elvish architecture. It's not. It's it's like not exactly identical to, but it's like some of the architecture we'll see in Rivendell. Um, uh, more importantly, some of the older architecture in here. Notice these seem to be these little arches seem to be kind of newer. The cobblestones are very grass-grown. This looks like the Greenway, so this is sort of an old 
path. It looks like, you know, clearly this was, uh, this is a place which is past its heyday, but we see an interesting mixture, right? Some complete ruins, like the place where I was summoned in. Um, and then this other, uh, house over here, I don't know, call it house exactly, but this other building over here, which is not a ruin at all and looks quite well maintained, not only because it has like lights glowing in the windows, but you see there's a bell and a bell tower, right? Which seems perfectly functional. You don't normally see that in a ruin. Um, you know, there seems to be glass in the windows and things like that. So, um, and even these little like gazebo areas over there, those are not ruins either. Those are structures. Indeed, they look to be wooden structures. Um, uh, a good deal more recent. So this is, uh, we have a, a current structure and even these arches that we passed through on the way in and that cross over this little bridge, the bridge itself and the arches all seem fine. And yet there are also ruins, right? We see these enormous pillars, which are all broken off and lying on the ground, um, which suggests that there was, there used to be some huge structure here. I'm trying to imagine this. This is open, as you can see, like what's not spend all this time looking at my horses, but, um, hey, look, it's, it's Remarath, and, like, there they are, once again, hey, it's time to burst into song, Minelvagor has just leaned up over the horizon here, see it? Um, and here I am looking straight to the east here, and we can see Minelvagor rising up, uh, so that's cool, uh, but anyway, as we can see, this is a, this is a big old clearing here, um, uh, that other settlement is kind of nestled in amongst the trees and uh, amongst those willows. This is a, we're near a, a sort of a swamp. So that's why we have willows here. Um, but this one, uh, ruin here and those huge pillars suggest there was some very large structure here of some kind. Um, of what kind, we don't know exactly, but of course, those of you who are familiar, um, those of you who are familiar with the game, will recognize. Where do we see other ruins like this? Anybody recall? Any connoisseurs of elf ruins? Which elf ruins do these look like? Yeah, uh, Matthias, exactly. These look just like the ruins we see in Eregia, uh in-game. And that, of course, makes a lot of sense. That's just what uh, what we would expect, yes. And it looks like Eridluin uh, as well. Um, some, of, some of them less ruined. Uh, over there. And what do those two places have in common? Arid Lewin out in the Blue Mountains and Eregion, uh down, you know, down to uh, to the south, just out there to the west of the Misty Mountains. Uh, the thing that they have in common is that both of those are places uh, where not only elves dwelt of old, uh, Matthias, but where Noldor dwelt of old. The uh, elves of Eregion. <clears throat> that was one of the the only Noldor kingdoms, uh, you know, out to the to the east of the sea. Um, most of the elves that remained in Middle Earth settled in Linden, um, out by the Blue Mountains. So that's that's the some of the elves of Linden that we're seeing out in Arid Lewin. Don't worry, we'll get out to Arid Lewin uh, also and see those elvish settlements. We've seen the dwarf settlements out there, or at least Thorin's Gate. Um, we'll get to we'll get to the elvish places out there too. So, uh, therefore. Uh, in the uh, knowing what we know from Tolkien of how these things are set up and what we can see in the game, that suggests that this was a Noldorin structure. And it makes a certain amount of sense because uh, uh, of whom we meet here. In fact, we do find that uh, the elves here uh, are 
high elves. So that makes sense. Um, uh, let me, uh, let me see if any of these elves will talk to me. I know some of the elves, of course, only talk to you when you're, um, let's see. It brings me great pain to see the destruction of this once beautiful place. Okay. So there's been a recent mishap, not just now, of course, an elf looking around at these ruins, you know, this, this place could have fallen to, you know, could have fallen to ruins 3000 years ago. And this visiting elf could still be like, Oh, it's so sad to see this place so run down. It used to be awesome, right? I mean, so that you can't, uh, you can't kind of prove anything about that. Where's um, where's that sitting lady? Where was she? Which side of this did I? Oh, here she is, out back. What's she doing? Is she reading? Yeah, she's reading. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt you. My heart is heavy with sorrow. Lachen was a good friend. Yes, the quest is that the leader of the elves who lived here has just recently been killed. Um, this is an elf settlement, and the elf settlement here was just attacked by trolls. Uh, so, of course, over this way, if you go across the uh, uh, the marshes here, uh, you'll find a bunch of uh, trolls, a large number of trolls uh, over there. And remember, that's in keeping with what we hear in the book as well. Remember, one of the rumors that Frodo hears is that trolls are abroad now and uh, and no longer slow and dull-witted, right? Uh, you know, like uh, uh, like like Bert and 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 William. Uh, they are, uh, um, uh, they're now, uh, cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. Uh, and indeed the trolls that invade over here are pretty, are, are pretty dreadful indeed. Uh, but let's, uh, let's go on in again. There's lots of, uh, so, you know, you come to this place and there are lots of quests that you can go on, uh, to sort of help the elves around here, um, Oh, vines. Yeah, you're growing grapes. That's very nice. I know it's not Darwinian, right? But uh, you just you sell me things. That's very good. I don't need anything right now. But th- Oh, you're the grocer. That's very good. Right. And here's, here's somebody. What the stone trolls destroy, we will rebuild. Right there you go. That's the spirit. Right. I don't know what he's doing. Weeding the bushes there. I love how the tree grows is growing right in the middle. So like this gazebo thing is, is also... Um, they, they've built the wooden structure around, you know, this beautiful sort of gold inlaid wooden structure around here with the tree growing in the middle so that the canopy of the tree forms the roof, which is kind of lovely, right? It's a really neat effect. Um, okay, they can never be forgiven for what they've done here, the stone trolls of Tower Gonwythe. Well, right. Well, I understand. Let's go inside. Um, and, uh, this of course is Gildar. Gildar and Glorian himself is the, the stars on his boots. I love the star boots. Um, I can't really see the starlight in his hair exactly, probably because he's inside, you know, but, um, Anyway, so here's so this is where um, we were asking like where Gildor was going, right? Here is where he was going. In fact, this is again it's one of the things uh, that Lotro is so good at, and that is picking up on anything that gets referred to in the books, which is not resolved or not explained or something like that, and they'll take it and they'll make a storyline out of it. They'll 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 develop 
that storyline. Um, so it's a question that gets asked in the book but never answered, right? Where where were they going, in fact? Um, and uh, so in the answer, the answer here, this is where they were going. And uh, so they were they were they were just visiting this place. But again, notice the the, the sort of the high elvish architecture that we were looking at uh, outside. Um, it seems likely, you know, with Gildor and the other high elves coming here, that this was indeed a high elvish set- settlement. Um, which is why we, uh, which is why we we see that ar- that architectural pattern. Um, we have the swans, right? Another thing that uh, is uh, sort of the swan being a really interesting symbol. Let me uh, let me head back out here. So you can talk to Gildor, but uh, you need the quest for Gildor. We don't have the quest. A couple of you guys were asking about this. Uh, this carving out here um, is this a is this a phoenix? It looks like a heron um, or an egret. Uh, but I think the I don't think I. Um, Yeah, Tony says he always imagined Gildor to be blonde. Um, Gildor... See, it's tricky. Um, it's tricky that... Uh, it depends on which house Gildor's in. Gildor says he is of the house of Finrod, right? So if he's of the house of Finrod Felagund, then he could be blonde. Uh, because it would mean he would be in the house of Finarfin, uh, and the house of Finarfin often went to blonde hair. That's where Galadriel got her blonde hair um, uh, uh, from from their grandma, uh, who was one of the uh, one of the Teleri, uh, of course. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, um, but yeah, so Grim, you're right. There aren't that many blonde elves, but there are. Uh, uh, there are blonde elves uh, in the house of of, uh, of Finarfin, so that's possible. But exactly, Yana, that's the trick, right? The whole "I'm of the house of Finrod" is kind of a trick question thing, because at the time that Tolkien wrote that, Tolkien was revising the names in the Silmarillion material. Remember, Silmarillion's not been published at this at this time, right? So when he wrote "I am Gildor of the house of Finrod." and he wrote that in the late 30s, um, Finrod was the name of the son of Fingolfin, the guy who is in the published Silmarillion called Fingon. Fingon was the guy that, in fact, Gildor is associated with. So, it's as I said, it's, a, it's like a trick question. So which house is Gildor actually associated with? The one whose, whose name was kept there? In the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, in the Lord of the, in the published Lord of the Rings, Finrod, do we shift him to the House of Felagund, or is he in fact um, uh, is he in fact still of the House of of uh, Fingon? In which case, he would have darker hair. He wouldn't be blonde. Um, uh, none of the House of of Fingon, I believe, would be blonde at all. So, you know, it kind of could go could go both ways. Um, 
Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Here we're like really uh, insensitively standing around this cowering guy. You know, this this guy John, who seems to be a human, possibly a farmer or something from nearby, and he's like cringing and cowering and talking about orcs everywhere. Uh, he's uh, there are indeed orcs everywhere, just to the south of us here in uh, Nanwethren, um, which is where he comes from. Uh, so he's a little spooked. And again, if you come here in the game, you get a chance to uh, uh, to to help them. Now, uh, Wayloff asks, uh, "Does being of the House of Finrod uh, necessarily mean that you're a blood relation?" Well, not necessarily, but I kind of think it probably does in this case. Um, the way that Gildor says it, like, "I am of the House." I mean, like, that could theoretically just mean that he's attached himself to the House of Finrod, right? Um, that, like, he's a follower of the House of Finrod, um, which doesn't necessarily tell us anything about who his relations are. But I would think that he would be a relation. He'd be in the family. Um, but anyway, um, but, but back to this bird over here. I can't think of any even indirect reference to phoenixes uh, in Tolkien's world. I have a hard time believing that this is a phoenix. Um, plus, I don't see anything that it actually looks like fire around here. Um, I'm not saying that Tolkien was necessarily anti-phoenix, but a water bird. It might seem like, why would they carve like an egret or a heron? Uh, on their walls, but it could well be the symbol of their little settlement here. I mean, remember, they're like right here in the lowlands. They're here in the wetlands. So, you know, taking the heron or egret as their uh, sort of symbol and carving it in the walls in lieu of banners makes a certain amount of sense. It doesn't look like a seabird to me, Grip. It might be. Um, It doesn't look like one to me. But it's possible that it could be. Uh, the crest doesn't look seabird-ish to me, nor the wings, frankly. Um, but, you know, who am I to say? It could be. Um, anyhow, so... Uh, so where they were headed. Um, they've come up here, and they've come on a... Um, uh, on a relief mission. Again, this settlement has just been recently attacked, and Gildor is here to try to help, uh, to try to uh, to make sure that the trolls don't come back. There's this incursion of orcs, as I said, just to the south of here. Uh, things are getting ugly in this area. Um, you know, those rumors that Frodo's been hearing in the Shire about enemies on the move um, is... Uh, you know, is 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 definitely again. It's one of those things that we see. You know, what is only a, a, a distant rumor from far lands uh, in the book uh, becomes something which becomes the premise of, of of story and quests that you get to go on in the game. Um, so we begin to see those things on the move and uh, get to take action here. So you come down to Gildor now. Interestingly, the larger context of your meeting with Gildor in the epic quest line um, is that there uh, uh, Halberd the Ranger whom you get to meet, who's pretty awesome. We'll meet Halberd later on in a different field trip. Um, but you meet Halberd the ranger, and he's trying to get together a bunch of the... Lo- basically try to call a little council 
of uh, of of the North Downs. So there's uh, there's uh, the the Rangers live up here. This is their their hidden base. We've got some like Breeland humans down here in Trestle Bridge, which is basically the boundary to Breeland down here. Uh, there's even a settlement of dwarves up here. Um, so he is trying to get together the elves, the dwarves, and the humans, like the men of Bree, uh, into a into a little North Downs council to get them to, to collaborate and work together to resist the evil that's moving into the area. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I think it's it's really... Uh, it's really neat um, the way that this sort of parallels other stories. And we'll, we'll, again, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, in uh, uh, in in future field trips as we as we explore some of this stuff. Um, but notice what this the position that they're putting Gildor in from a story perspective, right? Um, was he? You know, are they imagining that he already knew of this? Uh, problem was headed up here to help before he met Frodo? Is this something that he discovered after he met Frodo? Um, and this is where he ended up? Uh, I'm not really sure. I don't remember any reference in the epic quest to the timing of when he discovered it. Uh, if you, if anyone recalls more clearly than I do, uh, please uh, feel free to share that with me. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so so they, they, they've imagined a destination for Gildor, and then you, as the player character, have to go and draw him out. And that, to me, is the really interesting thing, right? Thinking especially of the conversation we had earlier today about, you know, it is not our custom to take others with us, right? The, the way in which the elves tend to keep to themselves. They've come here to help out because the, uh, these elves, you know, their fellow elves up here, which uh, seems possibly even their fellow Noldor up here, have, um, um, have, are, are in trouble and need help. Right, um, but yet you have to work to interest them, to get the, to convince them to take an active interest and to take an active role in collaborating with the other races up here, with the dwarves and with the humans, the local humans, and with the rangers. You know, under the sort of the guidance of the rangers, uh, in order to help in this region as a whole. Um, so that tendency towards isolationism, keeping to themselves, helping their own, but keeping to themselves and not um, even revealing themselves to much less working alongside, you know, dwarves and humans, um, that's sort of the central plot of the North Downs that you work on when you're here. So, uh, so I think that that's really neat, especially again, in the context of Gildor, um, Gildor, when you go through the epic quest line, apart from Aragorn and Gandalf, um, uh, Gildor is one of the first characters from the Lord of the Rings that you get to meet. Uh, and uh, I always find, I always, uh, I have, uh, uh, very, very fond memories of this place um, for that reason uh, from when I was playing the game for the first time. Alright, well I should go. I've been keeping you guys late uh, both running late and keeping you guys late and I should run here um, but uh, thanks everybody for joining me next week. Uh, so don't forget next week uh, we're going to be back at the normal time back to 9.30pm Eastern Time uh, and we're going to be on the Arkenstone server uh, next week. So I hope you guys will be able to join me then and I will, uh, I will see you guys next week. So thanks everybody for joining me. Bye now.